This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, where we uncover the truth, one guest at a time. For those who dare to seek, Veritas is the place where they shall find. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members. As always, you are keeping Veritas alive. Tonight's special guest is John Perkins author, environmental philosopher, businessman, and former economic hitman. He is the best-selling author of the classic expose, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. Tonight, we'll be discussing that and his new book, Hoodwinked. John Perkins will be with us shortly. To listen to the complete version of this and all our past and future shows, become a member. You will receive immediate access to all our inventory of shows. That's all of them the Veritas private chat room, and the Manticore forum. Just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, click on subscribe, and take Veritas with you. Remember, we survive on your voluntary subscriptions only. There are no commercials and no censorship. Have you looked at our newest, hottest product? 
It's the 8GB brushed metal cased USB drive containing all of Season 1 and a lot of bonus material. It's now in stock. You may want to check out what else is included. There's a lot of material crammed into this futuristic piece of Veritas history. Visit the Veritas store for more information and to place your order. If you need to get in touch with me, just go to our website, veritasshow.com, and click on the contact button or on Facebook. And now, get ready to find out how we have been hoodwinked by the New World Government, which is already in place. So stop looking for a New World Order. It's already here, in the way of CEOs who run the corporatocracy, those few corporations that control the vast amount of capital, land, and resources around the globe, and the politicians they manipulate. These corporate fat cats have sold us all on predatory capitalism, a misguided form of geopolitics and capitalism that encourages a widespread exploitation of the many to benefit a small number of the already very wealthy. Their arrogance, gluttony, and mismanagement have brought us to the perilous edge. The solution is not a return to normal. How did we get here, and what can be done? John Perkins will tell us, and he's coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. right here on the Veritas show is supplied by the independent artists from Jamendo.com. If you hear a song you like, go over to our homepage, VeritasShow.com, click on the guest, look up the song, and download it. You can even buy the group's CDs, in many cases, right there at Jamendo.com. This is Peter Lavenda. And you are listening to Veritas. John Perkins is an author, environmental philosopher, businessman, and the best-selling author of the classic expose Confessions of an Economic Hitman and other publications. John Perkins has seen the signs of today's economic meltdown before, the subprime mortgage fiascos, the banking industry collapse, the rising tide of unemployment, the shuttering of small businesses across the landscape are all too familiar symptoms of a far greater disease. In his former life as an economic hitman, he was on the front lines both as an observer and a perpetrator of events. Once confined only to the third world, they have now sent the United States and in fact the entire planet spiraling down toward disaster. Tonight we'll be discussing John's latest book, here, Perkins pulls back the curtain on the real cause of the current global financial meltdown. He shows how we've been hoodwinked, which is the title of his new book, by the CEOs who run the corporatocracy. But there is a way out, Perkins makes clear, that we can create a healthy economy that will encourage business to act responsibly, not only in the interests of their shareholders and corporate partners and the lobbyists they have in their pockets, but in the interests of their employees, their customers, the environment, and society at large. Perkins assures that we can create a society that fosters a just, sustainable, and safe world for us and our children. Each of one of us 
makes these choices every day. He says that we hold the power, if only we recognize it. Tonight, John Perkins will share with us how we all have been hoodwinked, how we have arrived at this precarious point in our history, but also what we must do to stop the global tailspin. And it is a pleasure to me to introduce John Perkins. Hello, Mr. Perkins, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? It's great to be with you. Thanks so much, Mel. My pleasure. And may I call you John? Absolutely. I have looked forward a long time to this opportunity, and I want to thank, first of all, Peg Booth, your publicist, for finally getting you on the show, because I know you've been busy traveling. Uh, yes, it's been pretty calm for about the last five years, ever since Confessions of an Economic Hitman came out. And uh, But uh, I feel very privileged that I have the opportunity to speak out to so many people uh, across the country and, and around the world, in fact. And here's a question that I want to discuss right at the beginning of the show, John, that must be on, in everyone's mind. What triggered your transition? And we're going to talk about what an economic hitman is, but what triggered your transition from, let's say, being one of them to now being one of us? Well, I was an economic hitman starting about 1970 for about 10 years. And during that whole time, uh, I was continually getting more and more aware of the wrong that we were doing. When I started off, I was trained by this woman named Claudine, who who was a remarkable trainer. She really hooked me in the business, and we can talk more about that later if we want to. But um, I was always kind of convinced that I would be different. She told me that it was was a dirty business, and once you're in, you're in for good. And I, I always figured I would be different. And... Someday I'd write a book and expose the system, which, of course, I eventually did, but it took me an awful long time. But the, the, the deeper I got into it, the more I really saw uh, what a, a, a terrible job uh, we were all doing and I was doing and how we were deceiving people, that we were creating a clandestine empire uh, rather than trying to make the world a better place. Uh, I always had I'd gone to business school and I, I taught the World Bank and IMF and organizations like that were truly trying to get rid of poverty and make the world a better place. But the deeper into this I got, the more I understood that that just wasn't the case at all, that what they were doing was helping big corporations become more powerful and more wealthy and essentially creating an empire. Um, but so by my 10th year as an economic hitman, I've now got a staff of close to 50 people working for me. My official title was chief economist at a major consulting firm, Charles T. Maine in Boston. And I had really become very, very disillusioned. And there was a pivotal moment when I was I'd taken a vacation in the Virgin Islands and I was sailing, a sm- I had a small sailboat I was staying on. And late one afternoon, I rode it into shore at St. John Island and I climbed up this hill to a very old ruins of a sugarcane plantation. And I sat up there, it was, it was quite idyllic. The sun was setting, bougainvillea growing all around me on these beautiful little ruins. And I sat there taking in this idyllic scenery and then suddenly I was struck by the fact that this plantation had been built on the bones of thousands of slaves. And then it, it, it was, I had the realization that the whole hemisphere has been built on the bones of millions of slaves. And then at that point, I had to admit to myself that I, too, was a slaver, that the world that I was creating was putting a lot of people into a modern form of economic slavery. And at at that moment, I decided to quit. And uh, that's when I quit being an economic hitman. 
And I always say on this show that slavery was never abolished. It was transformed into the nine to five matrix. But speaking of St. John, I know exactly that spot. Uh, I'm from the Caribbean, so I know exactly where that is. Your book, that's Confessions the, yeah, that, of an Echo. That, that, that's the Annenberg, uh, Mel, that's the Annenberg plantation. You probably do know it well. Absolutely. And uh, your book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, has sold more than one million copies, and it's been translated into 30 languages. Even leaders from many countries have read your book. Doesn't this put you in the category of dangerous whistleblower? And I believe they tried to subvert you with $500,000 to not write your memoirs. If people are subverted or destroyed and you were not subverted, how are you still alive and well and have you been threatened? Good question. Um, you know, after I, I quit being an economic hitman after that uh, enlightened moment on St. John, um, I, I started to write the book and uh, I contacted other economic hitmen and jackals. They're the people who step in when we economic hitmen fail and they either overthrow governments who haven't cooperated with us or assassinate their leaders. I talk about that in some detail in the books. Um, and so I contacted other economic hitmen and jackals to get their stories into my book. And at that point, I, I began receiving anonymous phone calls, threats. I had a young daughter. Her life was threatened. I took the threats very seriously. I, I had seen people assassinated. I, I knew what the jackals could do. At about the same time, the chairman of the board of a big Boston, New York consulting firm, Stone & Webster, uh, invited me out to dinner. And over dinner, he said, you know, you have a great resume. I did. As I said, I was chief economist at one of their competitors. I had been. And he said, but we'd like to use your resume in our proposals. You don't have to do any work. Uh, you won't have to do much work. Just let us use your resume, and we'll give you a consultant's uh, fee that, that added up to about $500,000, half a million dollars. He said, just don't write the book. You can't write the book that I know you've been working on and, and continue to do this. You can write the other books that you'd like to write about, indigenous people. And I did. I wrote five books about indigenous people. But right. he said, just don't write this book. And I, I took the threats very, very seriously, Mal, and I, I took the bribe. I took the money. It was a legal bribe. And, I, and in my own defense, I have to say I, I, I put a lot of the money toward helping some of the people that whose lives I had impacted so negatively eventually forming Dream Change, or nonprofit. You can go to dreamchange.org to learn more, and Pachamama Alliance, pachamama.org. These are nonprofits that work with many of these people. So that kind of assuaged my guilt, but I didn't write the book. And then at 9-11, I was in the Amazon working with some of these people, and uh, when I came home, I flew to New York and went to Ground Zero. And as I stood there looking into that still smoldering pit, I... I knew I had to write the book. Uh, the American people had to know why there was so much resentment in the world uh, aimed at us. And But at this point, point I decided I, I wouldn't tell anybody that I was writing the book. Even my wife and daughter, uh, they knew I was writing something, but they didn't know what. I wouldn't write a proposal. I wouldn't get an advance the, the way authors usually do. I wrote the whole book. And then I sent the manuscript to my literary agent who got it out to the big publishing houses. At that point, it became my best insurance policy. And it still is, really, because mm -hmm. any jackal out there knows, anybody who doesn't want me to spread the word knows that 
the worst thing they can do is is kill me. If, if right. somebody had shot shot me back then, or somebody shoots me today, you know the book the book has sold a million copies, but it will sell many many millions more. If suddenly something tragic happens to me, and they they know that. Um, and and plus the people who normally wouldn't read the book suddenly will will read it, and that's the last thing they want to have happen. And before we start with the term economic hitman, I, I want to put things in perspective for our listeners. Recently, your daughter and son-in-law gave you a grandson. And I've heard you say that what I usually say on this show, it seems that you and I have the same goal. We both want to see uh, and do something that can manifest a better world for the children. What are you doing to make this happen? Well, my main job at this point is is to write and, and speak. I, I'm on a long speaking tour. I, I fly out day after tomorrow to University of Massachusetts, where I'm speaking at a conference there, and I'm one of the main organizers behind a new sustainability initiative at, at UMass, um, and many other places where I speak. In, in fact, your listeners could go to johnperkins.org, and my schedule's on there, and I'd love to meet some of them in person. Um, and, and I write. You know, in the last uh, five years, I've written three books on this subject, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, uh, The Secret History of the American Empire, and the most recent one, Hoodwinked. And I'm 65. I've kind of stopped uh, trying to organize corporations or even nonprofits. I serve on the boards of nonprofits. Um, so I do do that kind of work. But I see my main goal as being to inspire others, uh, particularly young people. I particularly like to, 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 to do things at universities, MBA programs. I work with the future leaders, inspiring them mentoring them in any way I can. And yes, I have a three-year-old grandson. His name is Grant. And every time I hold uh, this young man in my arms or, or walk with him through the woods, I, I have to wonder what this world is going to look like in six decades when he's my age. And, and I know if we keep on this course, it'll be very ugly. Uh, so I'm deeply motivated, perhaps more now than ever with, with a grandson to, to change that world. And I also recognize that there's no, for the first time in history, there's no way that my grandson living here in the United States can enjoy a sustainable, just, and peaceful world unless every child on the planet enjoys a just, sustainable, and peaceful world. This has never been the case before. Uh, but today, suddenly, we're, we're, we're terribly interconnected. And we have to recognize that the only way we can have homeland security is when we understand that the whole world is our homeland. And so when I talk about creating a better world for my grandson, I'm really talking about creating a better world for every child on this planet. And uh, that, that is my goal, to inspire others to continue to do their work as well as to continue to do my work and to inspire young people particularly to recognize that the, that the greatest thing they can do in their lives, that the, the, the surest way to real prosperity is to work hard to create a better planet for ourselves and our, our children and grandchildren. And I have a three-year-old daughter, and that's why I bring people like you on the show so we can discuss how to make this world better. You know, when you have... Uh 5% of the world population consuming 25% of the resources. Something is wrong, John. But before we continue discussing this, what is an economic hitman and who do they work for? Well, I think it's fair to say, Mel, that economic hitmen have created the world's first truly global empire. And it's the first empire in history that's been uh, established primarily without the military through economics. And obviously, we, we work in many different ways, but the most common, sort of the, the general approach, 
is to identify a, a country that, with resources our corporations covet, like oil, and then arrange a large loan to that country through the World Bank or one of its sister organizations, and yet the, the money doesn't actually go to the country, and it never goes to that country. Instead, it goes to our own corporations to build big infrastructure projects in that country, things like power plants and highways and industrial parks that benefit a few wealthy families in those countries, as well as our own corporations, of course, uh, but don't help the majority of the people who are too poor to buy much electricity, uh, there's not many jobs given by industrial parks. The PC people don't have cars. They can't drive on highways. And yet they're left holding a huge debt. The whole country is. It's a debt they can't ever possibly repay. And so at some point, we economic hitmen go back and say, since you can't pay your debts, you owe us a pound of flesh. Uh, sell your oil real cheap to our oil companies without any environmental restrictions. Or allow us to build a military base on your land or vote with us on the next critical United Nations vote. Things along those lines that, in essence, are, are, are we've created an empire. We brought this country into our zone of influence, into our empire. Uh, and in the few instances when we economic hitmen fail, and I talk in my books about how I failed with the president of Ecuador, Jaime Roldos, democratically mm -hmm. elected president, and uh, Omar Torrijos of Panama, when we fail, the jackals come in. They either overthrow governments or assassinate their leaders. In the case of both Roldos of Ecuador and Torrijos of Panama, they were assassinated because I and other economic hitmen couldn't corrupt them. They had great integrity. They would not sell their countries down the tubes the way others did. So they were taken out. And, of course, that served a is a great example for any future leaders of other countries who might be tempted to defy the system too, who wouldn't play the game. They could clearly see that it's a very dangerous game not to play. When you got the job, John, did you know exactly what the job entailed and who you were working for? You know, it, it, when I first started, um, well, first of all, while I was still in college, I was recruited by the National Security Agency, mm. uh, and I went through a bunch of tests, day-long tests, including lie detector tests and personality tests, and, and the NSA concluded that I would make a good economic hitman and that I had... Um, that, that that I had a couple of weaknesses that would be that would serve them well as ways to hook me, and I think it's fair to say that my weaknesses are perhaps the three big drugs of our culture: uh, power, money, and sex. I was a young man in my early 20s, and I, I wanted all of those, and I'd never had much in my life like that. I, I grew up quite poor in in rural New Hampshire, so it, this was very appealing. And then they encouraged me to go into the Peace Corps. I spent three years in the Amazon and Andes, and when I came out, uh, I was uh, funneled into this uh, consulting firm, Charles D. Maine in Boston, as I mentioned before, about 2,000 consultants worked for that company. No longer exists, but it was a big company in its day. And uh, I was trained by this woman named Claudine, who I describe in detail in the book. She obviously knew my weaknesses, and she used all of them. She was very seductive. She was very clever. Um, and uh, she told me 
that this was a dirty business and that once I agreed to go into it, I, I, w I wouldn't get out. And she basically told me what the business would be like, very much like what I've described to you, what economic hit men do, and went into a lot more detail over a period of a number of months in this uh, apartment in Boston. Um, so I, I did, I, I had been told uh, what I would be doing, and the, 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 basically the World Bank and its sister organizations, the Asian Development Bank, the American Development Bank, the Export-Import Banks, were tools of the economic hitmen. So I was told this, and, and all along I kind of believed that uh, somehow I, I would be better than all that and get around the system, but it was also very appealing to me uh, on a personal basis to have basically an unlimited expense account, to fly first class around the world, stay in the best hotels, eat in the best restaurants, wine and dine with heads of state and beautiful women, et cetera, et cetera. Things I, I you know, fantasized about most of my life. And throughout the interview, I will be mentioning names like Mohamed Mossadegh, Omar Torrijos, Salvador Allende, and, and others. People of high profile in government are usually subverted or destroyed. Some of these people were, let's say, incorruptible. And because of, of that, their lives uh, ended. Knowing this, how did you deal with this on a personal basis? Well, you know, it, it was very difficult. Um, Omar Torrijos was probably the greatest difficulty for me. I, he was the head of state of Panama. Panama. Uh, yes, and I, I liked him very much. Very charismatic man. My job was to corrupt him, was to bring, bring him around to accepting these huge loans, to put his country deep into a debt they couldn't get out of. And he didn't want to do that. I remember one time we were standing on this yacht, and he says to me, look, Juanito, I don't need your damn money. You know, I, I've got what I want. I've got a nice house. I've got a good, great wife. I've got, I've got a really good life. What I want is freedom for my people. He looked across the water and he pointed at, at Panama. That was we were out on this yacht in the bay, and uh, he he said, you know, I, I want to help those people over there. There's a lot of hungry, impoverished people there, and all through Latin America, and in fact, he said throughout the Third World, I, I want to help them. And he said, you know. Um, what you're doing here is going to come back to hound you guys in the United States, too. You're in the process of, of creating a predatory form of capitalism. He used the term first. I've used it a lot since. Predatory capitalism. He said it's, it's greed-based. It's highly materialistic. It seeks to make a few people more and more powerful and wealthier and wealthier while subjugating the rest of us. And you're using it right now in Latin America, but it's going to come back to haunt you. Don't allow yourself to be hoodwinked. He, he said this in Spanish. And... That's the title of my most recent book, but it was coined, that phrase in this regard was used by Omar Torrijos. And, you know, he was absolutely right. And I heard him, and I really liked the guy a lot. And I, I was faced with a huge dilemma because my job was to corrupt him. And I admired the fact that he wouldn't be corrupted. But it also meant that I wasn't doing my job, and I also was very concerned that if he didn't, wouldn't be corrupted, then he would either be thrown out of office, uh, there would be a coup launched against him, or he'd be assassinated. So it was a really, really difficult position for me to be in, and, and uh, I didn't know how to deal with it. And ultimately, he, he was assassinated uh, shortly after I quit. I, it, it, part of dealing with him is what really 
helped me understand that I had to get out of that business. So his jet crashed, and uh, uh, this is how it went down. The jackals went in, and that's that's how it happened. Yeah, he had, he, it was a, a small prop plane on a jet, but he it it crashed, and there was there, there's no question. And three months before that, the same thing had happened to Jaime Roldos, and almost the same air, aircraft. Um, and Jaime Roldos was the same elk as, as Omar Torrijos. I didn't know him as well. He wasn't as charismatic, in my opinion, that he was a very strong-willed, very a man with great integrity. And uh, his plane crashed uh, three months earlier. All the investigations that were done by any parties other than the FBI um, and CIA uh, it, it concluded that it was an assassination, that the plane was brought down. And the same was true with Omar Torrijos. Officially, officially, you won't get the United States admitting to those. The United States does admit to bringing down Mossadegh and, and Allende and Arbenz and a few others, but they have not yet admitted to Roldos or Torrijos, but I, I have no doubt. And many of these people uh, are not simply left-wing idealistic socialists. Some of them were U.S. educated with master's degree, with a, a knowledge of economics, and they simply wanted to help their people. But just to put a parenthesis here, not too long ago, we also saw in the headlines how almost suddenly Iceland went from being one of the richest countries per capita to going through a massive economic implosion. I know you recently traveled to Iceland. What motivated you to go there and what did you learn? What did you find out? Well, a film crew from Iceland visited me three, maybe closer to four years ago now um, and interviewed me and, and, and described what was going on in Iceland with the big uh, aluminum companies um, and it's particularly Alcoa, Alcoa, where Iceland was, was taking huge amounts of debt, uh, going deep into debt in order to build big hydroelectric projects for the exclusive use of the aluminum companies. And uh, they asked me what I thought about this. And I said, well, Iceland's being hit by economic hitmen, and I, I predict that you're going to go bankrupt. So this was a major movie. It, it actually had a budget of a million dollars, uh, which is big for a documentary. Um, and... By the time it, it was finished and ready to be premiered in Iceland, in fact, Iceland had gone into bankruptcy, exactly as I predicted several years before that. And at the time I predicted it, everybody in Iceland was thinking, oh my God, you know, we're going to be, this is really going to help us. We're going to have this huge industry there, this big uh, aluminum industry. It's going to really help us. But in fact, it, it destroyed Iceland's economy. And so for the premiere, they invited me to come to Iceland and uh, sit with the president of the country for the premiere and go around and speak at universities and, and other forums there, uh, meet with people, meet with ministers of state and so on. And, and, and I did that. And there were a few people who shaped your job as an economic hitman. Some of them influenced me in a way back in business school. John Maynard Keynes, Milton Friedman, and so they did to you. Did you feel you were in a way... A real-life James Bond, you know, hotels, private jets, booze, women, etc. Good, uh, good question. Now, um, I did. Uh, there was an aspect of me that, uh, you know, as when I was in high school and then college, I was always on scholarships in college, and I had, uh, I had uh, almost uh, no money. My, my dad was a teacher at a boys' prep school, a boarding school in New Hampshire. And we had everything provided. The school gave us a house. They gave us food. They mowed our lawn. They did everything. We, we didn't want for things. But 
We had no money. My dad basically didn't receive a salary. He received a house and, a good, and he received a great pension, which, which he was able to survive on after he retired. Good health care, but, but no money. And on the other hand, I was surrounded all my life by very, very wealthy young men uh, from Argentina and France and uh, New York, all over the world, very, very wealthy. And when I ended up going to that school, it was a, it was a high school equivalent, uh, so that's what I, where I went for high school, I, my classmates would go off for Christmas vacation and I would end up in the snows of New Hampshire shooting baskets in the school gym by myself. My dad had a key. And then these guys would all come back and with these amazing tales of orgies or, you know, incredible parties, whatever, in Buenos Aires, you know, in Athens and uh, all over the world. And and I would be so jealous. And then I went to college and I was on a full scholarship at college uh, and uh, I had no money and I was extremely shy with women. I'd grown up in a boys prep school. I was very, very shy. I really kind of hated myself. for all of that. So uh, when I became, and and at the same time, the James Bond movies were coming along, and I thought, boy, wouldn't that be incredible? So the opportunity presented itself. And I certainly didn't, you know, I was never a jackal. I never killed anybody. I never did anything illegal. But the stuff I did should should be illegal, but even to this day, it's not illegal to, you know, put countries into bankruptcy any more than it's illegal to put individuals into bankruptcy, uh, as we've seen during this recent recession. But uh, so I, so I, you know, I never carried a gun. I never didn't have those cars with the fancy equipment on them. But I did live that kind of a life on another level. I stayed in the best hotels wherever I went, had a great expense account, wine and dine beautiful women and presidents and heads of state, you know, heads of uh, ministers of state and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I often did did feel that I was living that dream. And not too long ago, there were two superpowers, John, the United States and the Soviet Union. Then a single country was on top, the United States. That is now ending. The planet's geopolitics have changed. If the emerging rulers are not presidents, dictators, government officials or politicians, then who are they? Is it a global corporatocracy? I always have a problem pronouncing this word. Corporatocracy, taking over and CEOs are the rulers? Yes. Yes, we. I think we're at a time in history, Mel, that's uh, similar to when the city-states became nations. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, except today, the nations are becoming irrelevant. And presidents are not very powerful. We, we see this in, in Obama. He's really not a very powerful person on this planet. He's not as powerful as the, as the CEO of major, some of the major corporations. Uh, and so what's emerged is this new sort of empire. And instead of having one emperor, it has a number of emperors, what I call the corporatocracy, these are the men, primarily men, who run our biggest multinational corporations. And they control the mainstream press around the world, either through direct ownership or, or through their budgets. Uh, they control politicians around the world, including in the United States, through campaign financing. We, we see that very clearly these days. We see it very clearly in the case of the Obama administration. And they have the power. 
uh, uh, let's remember that a, an emperor is not elected and doesn't serve a limited term and reports to no one. Well, certainly our presidents don't fall into that category, but the heads of corporations do. They're not elected, they don't serve limited terms, and they report to no one. They like to say they report to their boards, but in fact they all serve on each other's boards and just kind of rubber stamp each other. Right. Uh, and I, I think, you know, you could kind of view the planet. During most of my lifetime, you could view the planet, as, you know, this big globe with, with roughly 200 countries, of which a few had a lot of power. As you mentioned, the Soviet Union, the United Kingdom, the United States at various times. But today, a better picture of the geopolitics of this planet would be this big globe again with roughly 200 countries and huge clouds drifting around it. These are the big corporations. They know no national borders. They don't follow any specific sets of laws. Uh, they strike deals and form partnerships with the Taiwanese and the Chinese, with the Tibetans and the Chinese, with the Israelis and the Palestinians, with mm -hmm. whoever uh, they think it will serve their purposes of, of getting more resources and more markets. And, you know, many people talk about the new world there is coming, the new world there is coming. But I see it more. We don't even need a bullet. As you said, it's, it's, it's an economic uh, coup d'etat of the world where these major corporations are now taking over. Let's take the BP oil disaster. Is it just me? Or did you get the impression that BP called the shots and our government was subordinate to what they wanted to do? And the Coast Guard, the EPA, just went along with anything they did, John? Well, beep, beep, beep. BP did call the shots, of course, and it's not just BP. Every oil company out there is going to stand behind BP in their own way. And, you know, I think we sometimes don't have any real appreciation for how powerful oil is. Um, you know, our agricultural industry is totally dependent on oil for insecticides and fertilizers and other chemicals and for packaging everything. Our medical industry is dependent on oil, uh, you know, for creating medicines and packaging and all the, 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 the clothes that, that people wear, uh, medical workers. Uh, you can go on and on and on. And, and, and the, the, the oil is, is incredibly powerful. It, it doesn't even have to have huge lobbies of its own, although it does have pretty big lobbies, but it can also fall back on the lobbyists from insurance companies and banking companies and healthcare companies, like I said, and food companies who, who are all very closely tied in with big oil. Big oil is, is extremely powerful. And yes, uh, BP certainly called the shots. And behind them was Exxon and um, Shell and Chevron and everybody else, all the other oil companies, if, if they needed that support, it was there for them. And John, we always mention how the mainstream mediaopoly is, no, is owned by five major corporations now. When in 1983, 50 corporations controlled the majority of the news media in the U.S. By 1992, that had been reduced to less than 30. How can we say that we have transparency in the media John, when well, we know the companies that uh, that own them, if anyone speaks against any of the interests they represent, whether by ownership or sponsors, commercials, as a reporter, you are told not to report or are literally fired. On the book, you include a, an example of someone who got fired for criticizing GE, General Electric. Do you remember that? I do. Yes, I do. Um, it, it, you know, in, in that particular case... Uh, it was a plant in Florida, a Florida Power and Light plant that didn't start up on time. And uh, the, the plant manager was interviewed 
by one, a major newspaper. And he said, well, the reason the plant didn't start up on time, one of the reasons was that the GE turbine was late. And Jack Welch, who was head of GE at the time, uh, called the chairman of the board of Florida Power and Light and said, fire that guy. And he did. He was fired. And of course, once again, the ripple effect is enormous. That sends a message throughout the industry. And uh, I also mentioned in, in the book and hoodwinked uh, about when GE bought out uh, NBC and uh, uh, a couple of producers of uh, NBC committed suicide. Uh, they couldn't stand uh, what was going on. And suddenly all the news was being censored. And you, you couldn't say anything. Tom Brokaw and, and the Tom Brokaw News couldn't say anything against General Electric or or one of its client, big clients or suppliers. Um, so things have been very censored. You know, the mainstream media is not an unbiased media by any means. And, and you know, the, thank God that we've got people like you, Mel, there is an alternative media. You're part of it. You're a big part of it. Uh, the Internet, I thank God for that. And I fear for it. You know, right now there's a, a very strong reaction against all the pornography on the Internet. Uh, I have a sneaking suspicion, and I can't possibly prove this, so this is supposition, and I don't really like to speculate in general. I like it's to the excuse. I know about but, but I will say this, that I, I have a suspicion that, that part of this porno, pornography rage um, may, have, may be driven by somebody who wants to take control of the Internet, somebody like yes. the CIA who, who uh, wants people to, to demand that there be more restrictions put on the Internet so that their kids can't have such easy access to pornography. And I'm not defending pornography, but I am saying that, that I'm very concerned that there's going to be a major attempt uh, to censor the Internet, and and that will then censor uh, a lot of the freedom of the press that we see. And look what's just happened to WikiLeaks. Leaks, WikiLeaks. Yeah. Uh, you know, here's an organization that I think has done the world a great service, and it's in the best of traditions of the old muckrakers and the you know the the, the reporters who who ferreted out crimes that were not being reported. And the fact that our government is reacting so strongly and, and attempting uh, to bring charges against the, the, the WikiLeaks leaks people uh, instead of really focusing on the real crimes that were committed by our armed forces abroad and by these task forces that are uh, conducting illegal assassinations. Uh, and now that this has been exposed by, by a, a media outlet, WikiLeaks, Instead of really going after the culprits, the people that have committed the crimes, they're going after the messengers that have exposed the crimes. And I think that tells us an awful lot about the state of, of our press these days. And as of this morning, the Pentagon is demanding the 15,000 documents from WikiLeaks back. So let's see how that unfolds. But yes, the, the internet, we are one of the last bastards of truth here. There's no censorship, John. If you ever want to say something on this show that you've never said before, feel free to say so. But John, you are of the opinion that from 1933 to 1980, there was true a true sense of national loyalty and service. There's fiduciary responsibility, which shaped the ethics of many executives, government officials, and teachers. But everything stopped in 1980 with President Ronald Reagan and the ascendancy of Milton Friedman's economic, uh, you know, a lot of his approach. So in the last 30 years, the tables turned. Please elaborate. 
Well, when I was in business school in the late 60s, Mel, um, you know, we were still adhering to Keynesian, John Maynard Keynes as uh, price right. economics. And in fact, Richard Nixon said, we're all Keynesians. You know, he was a pretty staunch uh, conservative Republican, but he was a Keynesian. And uh, Keynesian economics was fairly compassionate. Uh, it had its weaknesses, certainly. But I was taught in business school that if I became a CEO of a co- corporation, um, I, had a, I would have a fiduciary responsibility, not just to my stockholders, but also to my employees and their long-term benefits. So you're providing them with good health care and, and retirement pension funds. And I would have a responsibility to my customers and to my suppliers. And I'd have a very strong responsibility to the community where I did business, to taking care of that community. Uh, and that, you know, that, uh, that I was taught that a good CEO was like a, a loyal soldier. He didn't have to make an awful lot of money. He took a lot of his, um, you know, part of his payment, if you want to call it that, was the knowledge that he was doing good things for the world, for his customers, his employees, the community where he worked, as well as his stockholders. But all that changed when Milton Friedman came along. And, you know, Milton Friedman really espoused an economic system, which is what uh, Torrijos identified as predatory, and that's what I would call it, a predatory form of capitalism. It's based on three principles. One is that uh, the only responsibility of business is to maximize profits regardless of the social and environmental costs. And two is that uh, we should reduce restrictions and regulations on business. Business really shouldn't be regulated because that gets in the way of making profits. And three, everything should be run by business. Privatize everything. Privatize the schools, privatize the jails, privatize the military, as we're seeing happening today in Afghanistan. And these three principles have brought us uh, to the verge of collapse. And, you know, they've created a very uh, unsustainable, insane, unstable, and unjust uh, economic system. And, you know, I think the the only way we can define the economic system that's been created from all of this is it's a a failure. And you mentioned earlier that less than 5% of the world's population live in the United States and we consume over 25% of the world's resources. Well, that's a failure. It's not a model. You can't pass that on to Africa or Latin America. You'd have to have another five planets to repeat that model across the, the whole world. With planets with the same resources ours have without the people on it. And despite the movie Avatar, I don't think that's going to happen. So this is no model. It's a failed system, and we have to recognize it's a failure and, and, and come up with a better system. That's the challenge is to find a new system that truly works and that works for everybody. And we can talk about how dire things are, but one of the, the good things about your book is that it, it comes up with, with some conclusions, some, some, some solutions that I'd like to share with the, with the audience. But I'd like to share with the, the audience also that in, in my prior corporate incarnation, some of my clients were Bechtel. I remember visiting them in, in San Francisco or Monsanto in St. Louis and knowing exactly what they were doing. You know, Monsanto how they were putting farmers out of business, etc. How do we reconcile all this when people, and another example, in my town in the desert, we have Raytheon and other defense contractors. I go to social gatherings. When you see all these people being nice, good, well-intended people, and they work making missiles and making bombs, how do you tell them 
you know, how can you be so pro-war knowing that what you're making is probably going to take the lives of people like your own children? How do you make those people have a sense of, of reality, John? Well, you know, it's obviously a, a, a kind of a loaded question now because everybody's different and some people see the light. I did some really bad things and then I saw the light, but I was in a right. way lucky, I think, because I'd been in the Peace Corps. I'd, I'd, I'd lived with the poor people that were being exploited, so it was perhaps a little easier for me to see it than other people, other economic hitmen. But I, what I think is that all of us, not just the people in those corporations, but all of us need to arrive at a new awareness and a new consciousness. And, you know, one of the things, we've got to redefine that goal that, that, that drives business today of maximizing profits regardless of social and environmental costs. What if, we, what if every one of your listeners made a commitment right now uh, never to buy anything from a company that had that goal, but instead to support companies that have as a goal that, 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 that their motto is, we'll make profits, but only within the context of creating a sustainable, just, and peaceful world. And there are companies out there like that. You can go to the, 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 the website of one of the nonprofits that I founded, DreamChange, dreamchange.org, and you'll see links there to all kinds of companies that are committed to doing these things, places where you should be buying your, your shoes and T-shirts and so on. And Dream Change doesn't get any benefit from those. We really try to be very objective. Um, it, you know, I don't think any of these companies is perfect at this point, but let's support the ones that are determined to do this. And let's send emails. So, so you know, if every one of your listeners sends an email to, to Nike today and says, I'm not ever buying another product from you because you've got slave shops in, in, in Indonesia, sweatshops, yeah. uh, and I'm not going to buy another product from you until you turn those sweatshops into legitimate factories. Let's keep employing Indonesians, but let's give them fair wages, and let's give them decent working conditions and health care and pension funds. And at the same time, every listener sends a, an email to one of the uh, companies listed on the Dream Change site and says, I'm, I'm going to buy my T-shirts or my tennis shoes from you because you're trying, you're doing a good job, you're, you're, you're making an effort to be socially and environmentally responsible. You know, I think that's the way to go. And also, getting back to the Monsantos of the world and, and the Raytheons, yeah, there's some very brilliant people working for these companies. And I, I, I often think, what if we took a percentage of our military budget and it paid the same companies that are currently making missiles and, and tanks and whatever else they're making um, to instead develop technologies for cleaning up the terribly polluted lands of the world. I mean, we've got huge amounts of oil pollution in the Amazon. We've got terribly polluted farmlands throughout Central America and Africa. What if we hired the companies that we're now paying to kill people to instead come up with ways to clean up polluted land, polluted water, polluted air? And what if we paid cargo and uh, and uh, Chiquita, uh, companies that are doing some very bad things around the world. What if, what if we paid them to instead uh, come up with methods for producing food more efficiently on a local level that starving Africans could use to feed themselves and to come up with ways of uh, storing food efficiently on the local level and distributing it? 
you know, we can create a whole new economy. Everybody talks about sustainable energy, and that's terribly important. I'm all for it. Let's develop more and more sustainable energy. But there's so much else, Mel, that we can do to move away from a militarized economy into an economy that's creating a world that our children will want to inherit. And I think you and I and all of your listeners, we need to keep pushing these companies to move in that direction. And we need to keep pushing our government to use its tax dollars to do those kinds of things. And incidentally, I think that's also the way to homeland security. You know, uh, people, there'll always be some fanatics in the world. There'll always be serial killers, I think, people with a few screws loose in their brains. And perhaps Osama bin Laden is one of them. But people like that don't get a massive following unless there's desperate people. And so you find that the, the people we call terrorists around the world, I've met a lot of them, and all the ones I've met are desperate people who do not want to be practicing terrorism. They want to be back on their farms that were destroyed by oil companies or hydroelectric projects, etc. Or they want to be back out fishing the waters of Somalia that have been fished out by international fleets and polluted by our nuclear uh, uh, nuclear ships that are based in Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean. They want to be back doing those things. They don't want to be out killing people. It's the only hope that they have. But, you know, you mentioned Southeast Asia and Indonesia. Back in the mid-90s when I was doing my, my graduate work, I was doing some research in the area, and I visited a few, let's call them sweatshops in Indonesia. And, folks, you don't get what really happens there. You may be hearing this, although the mainstream media doesn't tell you because that would be affecting some of their sponsors. But I remember going to this specific sweatshop and I got a tour and I remember going to the, the sleeping quarters. There were only women there and there were 14 bunk beds in the size of what looked like a kitchenette. And I realized that the door from the inside did not have any lock. The lock was from the outside so that the people, oh, yeah. when they got into sleep, they wouldn't leave. And in the mornings, every one of them would stand in line and they would hand out their hands and the leader or the supervisor would hand uh, birth control pills. That's the kind of treatment that these people have. And when we go to Walmart and we buy a piece of, of whatever for a dollar and it makes you wonder, how in the world can I buy this for a dollar? Now you know. Right, John? Exactly. Yes. And uh, so we all have to take responsibility, don't we, for this? I think that's the part of the conclusion, Mel, is that, that we do. And um, we can blame the corporate executives, and, and to a very large degree, many of them are to blame. But we also have to understand that we send a pretty strong message out there to the corporations, we the people. We've said, you know, I want cheap T-shirts, and if that means they have to be made in sweatshops by slaves in Indonesia, I'll just look the other way. And I want cheap oil for my car, petroleum, and if that means destroying the Amazon or the Gulf, I'll just look the other way. And it's time now we sent another message. And we said, this is not what we want. We want a just, peaceful, sustainable world. We want a world that our children can uh, be proud to grow up in and inherit from us. And even the CEOs, not only the CEOs, but all the way down to the workers or major corporations, the end justifies the means. Profits, maximizing shareholders' wealth, that's most important. But also for the, for the listeners, here's a quick factoid. In the year 2000, on average, 
CEOs of the largest, 365 largest publicly traded U.S. companies earned $13.1 million or 531 times what the typical hourly employee took home. In 1980, that ratio was 42, and in 1980, it was 85. John, that means that in the year 2000, a CEO earned more in one workday than what the average worker made in 52 weeks. Look, I'm I'm not saying CEOs shouldn't be rewarded accordingly, but look at the jump in just a few decades. How can we reverse this? Well, I, I you know, we we have to put an end to it, and and we the people must demand it. You know, we need to call on our pension funds to do this. We need to call on any leverage that we have, but perhaps most importantly for the average person is just not to honor these people. If you see them on the cover of Time magazine, don't buy Time magazine. If you see them on the cover of Fortune magazine, don't buy Fortune magazine. We elevate these people uh, like superstars in, in sports or rock and roll stars. And in fact, they've tried to create that image. So you get a guy like Jack Welch, who was the uh, CEO of General Electric. Jack Welch is a robber baron. Nobody should have any respect for Jack Welch. I mean, you know, this guy, his claim to fame when he was a very young executive vice president at, at GE was that he, he fought the state of New York, that the state of New York was trying to force GE to clean up the pollution that it caused in the Hudson River. Terrible carcinogenics in the Hudson River that were killing uh, primarily GE employees who lived along the river and a lot of other mm. people too. And, and Jack Welch fought them successfully. He got the fine reduced tremendously. It's one of the reasons he became CEO. And then a CEO, he laid off a quarter of his employees while he was taking huge raises and bonuses for himself. And he was saying, I'm making this organization lean and mean. Well, he made it mean, that's for sure. And at the same time, he took GE essentially out of the manufacturing business into the financial services business. He's one of the guys that brought our economy down and took us from a manufacturing economy to an economy that deals primarily in paper. Uh, this guy is a robber baron, and yet he's an icon in many of our business schools. He's held up as a shining example of the way an executive should be. That wasn't the case in the 60s when I was going to business school. We, executives were held up to us in those days. They were, they were much more compassionate, that had a better view of life. I think we we really need to go back to that. We, the people, must stop honoring these guys and, and, and stop watching television shows that, that they have characters like the guy with a really weird hairdo from New York, you know, Donald Trump. Uh, <laughs> a, guy, a guy who's claimed the fame primarily is to sit on television and fire people. I mean, why does anybody watch a show like that? And when we watch it, we're, we're just feeding that kind of an ego. And, and we're holding this out as an example to our kids. This is what we want you to grow up to be like, a Jack Welch or a Donald Trump. Are you kidding? Uh-huh. Do you want your kids to grow up like that? No. Who does? Uh, so we have to take a lot of the responsibility that we put these guys in this slot, and we all, you know, people pick up the newspaper and say, oh, my God, who's the richest, who's the richest guy in Florida? You know, the richest CEO in Florida is the CEO of Florida Power and Light. And back in the 70s, I remember utility executives took pride in the fact that they did good jobs for people and they and they kept people employed for a long time and the CEO of big utility companies didn't make an awful lot of money, didn't make nearly as much as, as, as many other businesses. Now they're reaping it in too. And people love to read this. They see it on the front page of the newspaper and say, geez, I wish I could make that kind of money. 
we've got to turn that attitude around now. So a lot of it's we the people. And, uh, and, and send emails. You know, the Internet is an incredibly powerful tool. We all need to use it more, you know, rather than running around texting each other about what we had for lunch or sending a bunch of the kind of emails that most of us send during the day. Let's spend a little bit more time signing petitions. And while we're on that subject, again, you can go to you can go to my website, johnperkins.org, and there's a on the homepage, there's a link to a petition site where there's several hundred petitions that people can sign, depending on what you you know what your passion is. If your passion is to to help uh, starving people. You there's a petition for that. If your passion is to save animals that are being uh, tortured uh, for biological studies, you can sign that petition. There's a whole lot on there, but it's really important. These petitions do help. And it's so important. By the way, I'm probably going to get some hate mail about what I'm going to say, but folks, I'm only playing devil's advocate. The board of directors determines how much a CEO makes, just like a a sports player, somebody from the Yankees or the Dodgers. Isn't it supply and demand, John? So if they deem it appropriate to pay that CEO X amount, who are we to tell them no? Well, as I said earlier, uh, the boards of directors of these corporations are all each other. They all serve on each other's boards. So you know, wouldn't it be cozy, Mal, if you and I could uh, get together and decide that, well, you know, what you really need to be paid is $10 million this next year, Mel, and I'll approve of that if you'll approve of me getting paid $10 million also. Right. And uh, that's what they do. And, oh, well, that may mean that we're going to have to lay off uh, a quarter of our staff, as, as Jack Welch said at GE, or that we're going to have to produce an inferior product, or that we're going to have to, you know, uh, cut back on the salaries of our employees or the pension funds, which they do all the time. But let's give ourselves these big raises. Uh, so they do that. And, of course, it's terribly wrong. There's no question about it. And if we look back at the 1880s and 90s and we see people like Carnegie and J.P. Morgan and others, we, we say, my God, those guys were robber barons. Look what they were doing. Look what they were getting away with. Well, I'll tell you. Our CEOs today are getting away with a lot worse than those guys ever even conceived of. And we need to be aware of that, and we need to put our feet down and not buy anything from companies that do that. And there's plenty of companies out there that don't. You know, there's, uh, there's something called the Green Festivals, which are in four or five cities in the United States these days, and I speak at most of those. And, and they have a huge marketplace where entrepreneurs are making wonderful products that compete with almost anything you can buy out there from the big corporations, and, and, and they're all vetted. Uh, they're doing it in socially and environmentally responsible ways. There are alternatives, and we need to support those alternatives and send emails to those companies and saying, I just saw in the newspaper that you pay, you're pay, paying your executives $13 million. I'm not buying from you anymore. And also, let's not forget how we are told that we need to take responsibility for our own actions as, as consumers, people who got into mortgages or credit card debt and so on. But then all of a sudden, companies like AIG, Goldman Sachs and others get these massive billion dollar bailouts. And all of a sudden, they pay millions of dollars to their managers as bonuses, John. That seems a bit unfair, don't you think? Absolutely. It's criminal. It's, it is, there's no way to put it. It's criminal. And we're putting up with it. We, we, you know, I, I, you know, I keep coming back to 
we the people have to take responsibility. Obama's not going to change things, and uh, McCain wouldn't have changed things. Uh, Sarah Palin's not going to change things. Uh, the corporations are calling the shots. But what we have to remember is that the corporations are totally dependent on us to buy their goods and services, us or our tax dollars, and we have control over that. Uh, the marketplace is essentially democratic if we choose to make it democratic. I have to recall, I have to recall that when I went to business school in Boston in the late 60s, I couldn't walk beside the Charles River. It was so polluted. There were rivers in Ohio that were on fire with pollution. Not anymore. We forced the corporations to clean them up. We got rid of apartheid in South Africa by boycotting corporations that supported apartheid. Uh, we got rid of aerosol cans. We're destroying the ozone layer. Uh, we, we, we forced corporations to hire many more minorities and, and women, open their doors much wider to, to women. In more recent years, we've gotten rid of trans fats. We've gotten truth and labeling for foods. We now know how, how much salt and sugar and fiber and, and protein and calories are in every piece of food that we buy, practically every piece of food that we buy over the counter. Uh, we've gotten antibiotics out of chickens. Uh, when the consumers speak out, uh, things happen. It works. And now I think what we have to do is ratchet this up a notch and say we're not just going to go after some of those specific issues. We're going to go after the generic issue, and that is to say we're not going to buy from corporations that have as their goal maximizing profits regardless of social and environmental costs. We're only going to buy from corporations that are committed to being socially and environmentally responsible. And at the end of the day, we are the ones who support these major corporations, food business and so on. If we stop buying their products, they'll make a difference. But before we take a quick intermission, John, let me just read something. And some of the questions we'll be asking John when we come back. Members of the corporatocracy are not part of a conspiracy, but they are characterized by an obsession with winning. They will invest vast amounts of money to get their way. They also share a common goal to maximize profits regardless of environmental and social costs. In seeking that goal, they have created an extremely unstable, unjust, and dangerous world. And some of the questions I'll be asking John, how did people like that gain such power? How did the rest of us allow it? Why does society continue to put up with it? These are questions that are fair to ask, John. Tell us how to get in touch with your work, John. Well, the best way is to go to johnperkins.org. And, uh, and most of the information's there. Sign up for my uh, newsletter, please. You have to just fill in a little box with your email address. And it only comes out once or twice a month, so I don't overwhelm you with stuff, but I think we get some pretty good stuff on there. And I'm on Twitter at economic underscore hitman. And I got to tell you, as I always say, when I'll really like an author, your library will not be complete. John Perkins' books, not only this latest one, but all the other ones, are really a jewel to have in your library collection. Don't go anywhere, folks. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. We're here with John Perkins. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com. Click on subscribe and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more.
This is James Horick, and you are listening to Veritas.